This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello and welcome everyone to the Women in Comics panel. Uh, I, I know there are a few people still coming in, but I think we should keep it on time because we're um, after this session we're moving on to the interview with, with Paul Dinney as well. So let's just keep it going and if people quietly sneak in, that's all good. It's an absolute pleasure to have these wonderful people here today. Um, I'd like to introduce everyone individually. We've got from my... Right, um, Tom Taylor, who is, and most of you would know, of course, award-winning, um, number one New York Times best-selling comic book author, playwright and screenwriter. Um, his titles include a whole bunch of things from video games, Injustice, Gods Among Us. He's worked on Earth 2. Um, he's currently working on X, the X-23 character and also the All... all uh, which she's part of... the um, All-Star X-Men. And he's also written the uh, CG animated series Deep, The Deep, um, which has been extremely popular and I think has been renewed for another season. It has. Excellent yes. news. Next to Tom, we have Nicola Scott, who is a Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Yes. <laughs> uh, Nicola's a, um, an artist and she's worked with a lot of indie titles and uh, she's also worked on Dark Horse's Star Wars Empire, a whole series of DC Comics from Birds of Prey, Teen Titans, Secret Six, uh, Black Magic as well. She's uh, worked on um, some of the Superman comics and she's currently, oh, she's also worked on uh, Earth 2 with Tom yeah. writing. And she's currently Yay. the Wonder Woman illustrator, which is pretty fantastic, we all yeah. think. <laughs> Next to Nicola, we have Naya Leda. Naya is a researcher and also she teaches at the University of Melbourne in Swinburne and she's the founder of the All-Star Women's um, Comic Book Club. And I should also plug that over the weekend, All-Star have their Women in Comics Festival. So what a great way to cap off the, our two days with going along to the festival and All-Star Comics, it's, it's in the comic book shop. Is it, it is, yes, both levels. So please thank Naya for being with us today. <laughs> Fresh from the US, we have Hope Larson who is a New York best, uh, Times best-selling author. Another one, jeez. Um, she's got a number of graphic novels uh, that have, have won numerous awards. She's uh, completed the adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time. Um, recently, uh, there's Goldie Vance, which is a wonderful um, series. Uh, she's also recently written The um, Compass South and Knife's Edge, I think is coming out soon? June. June. Mm -hmm. mm. And, um, of course, she's the current uh, writer who's taken over Batgirl for DC Comics. And last but not least, Sarah Richardson, <laughs> who is also a researcher and lecturer at Melbourne Uni. Uh, she's currently writing about the nature of shame in graphic novels, um, <laughs> and in particular the graphic novels of Aline Kaminsky-Crumb and Phoebe Glockner. So, welcome to you all. Yeah. I thought... What we might do um, is 
I'll go plonk myself over there in a sec, but what we might do is I might start off asking a few questions, and then probably the best way to do it so that people aren't running around with mics, if you do want to ask a question, we could maybe have people sort of stand where, oh, there you go. That's why the microphone is there. There's a logic, there's a logic. There's one there so, too. Stand on either side here, and that way we have a system to work with. All right, before I sit down, my first question is to our creative people. Not that Sarah and Naya are not creative, <laughs> but you know what I mean. I'm, I guess one of the questions that, that has been raised over the last two days is um, the change that seems to be happening in, in the industry, in the mainstream sort of uh, superheroes comics industry, but also in the comics industry more generally that's it seems to be making space more for you know more women writers artists editors to come in in to the industry and i just wanted to hear a little bit about your own experiences working with uh both the you know, mainstream comics but also uh comics industry in general and if you feel that change having happened and and what effect has it had right okay you want to go, go first? Nick. yeah <laughs> When I first started breaking into the American industry, uh, it was pre-social media, um, and there didn't seem to be as many women sort of aiming themselves towards mainstream, and I wasn't aware, because I was kind of, you know, blindly charging my way in uh, and knocking people out of my way, um, I wasn't kind of really participating in the conversation and the American culture of getting into comics and, and it's sort of, you know, surrounding um, levels of, of small press and, and fan press and, and such. Um, and there just weren't that many women working in the industry. And that didn't sort of, you know, didn't stop me and I wasn't really concerned about it. But uh, by the time I started working at DC, social media was just starting to become a bit of a thing. And I started becoming aware of the conversation uh, as female fans and female creators were sort of finding each other and galvanizing the community. The conversation just started growing and growing and growing and getting a little louder and louder. And I benefited from it directly uh, when the New 52 happened for, for however many years it was ago. I'd been at DC solidly for, you know, about five or six years. And they made their big announcement of, you know, all the, all the titles and the creators. And they had one female creator, Gail Simone, on one book. Mm. And... It wasn't by design, it was just an oversight, but it was an extraordinary oversight. And that was kind of where the conversation got loud and angry, quite rightfully so, and DC got slammed. And, uh, you know, the, the, the way I benefited from it was that they were like, oh shit, yeah, we've got Nicola on the books, we need to get her something on, on something high profile, stat! And, uh, and, you know, that was why I was offered Earth 2. And, you know, that, that has sort of really helped me. And while I've, you know, been quite removed from the, the industry at large, I've sort of had the buffer of the Pacific Ocean to sort of keep me out of the drama. Um, but it also means that I, I'm not as able to 
participate in the conversations as much as I might like to and as much as I feel like I'm in a privileged position of responsibility to to speak up for people but I'm just starting to sort of get into it now but certainly with with the advent of social media and the the bigger companies now becoming uh, aware not only that they should be doing better but understanding certainly over the last maybe two or three years that they really should be doing better not just that they they want to not get in trouble but that you know they they feel like yeah we really should be doing this because we've got a much broader audience than we've been creating for. Yeah, and it's that normalising the culture. The, the culture just become it, so it became so stagnant in a sense. And through social media, there's this kind of sudden awareness that, yeah. in fact, there's also this huge market out there that they're not mm. tapping yeah. into. Yeah, yeah. the, the sales being there is definitely a big part of of the big two hiring women to to helm more books. Um, I actually have a slightly different perspective on the whole I'm sure. gender thing because um, I came up not through the mainstream but through web comics and then through book publishing where there's much more of a gender balance yeah. uh, particularly with graphic novels writing graphic novels writing for for kids at book publishers right it's tons of women oh. well it's like yeah as soon as you look at the industry as a whole not just DC and Marvel but when you look at the 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 broader American industry there are loads of women, loads yeah. of female creators and editors and publishers. It's a it's a much broader playing field. But when you get down to the mainstream, part of it is oversight. But I think it's also it's really combative workspace. Mm-hmm. It's very compressed. A lot of work is required in a very little time, little amount of time, and it has to. It's relentless and ongoing Mm. and that is just not a particularly pleasant work environment for yeah for for anybody unless you know you've you've you you're you're up for the the struggle or the fight yeah it's it's not necessarily very appealing to a lot of people i mean i think younger creators especially just want to do their own thing yeah who can blame them for that but I think we are getting a lot more of that sort of that top-down change yeah where you know that we still need far more Right at the very top, yep. um, and that hasn't happened. But um, I think I've got six editors on the books I'm writing at the moment, and four are women. Great. So it's you know it feels like that's I can see those changes every day as well. And you think that that's not a, a, just a surface change? Do you actually see the trickle down effect in the the creative works that are, are getting out there? Yeah, absolutely. In yes. Certainly in the last couple of years. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Tara, uh, Tara, Naya and, um, and Sarah, I think I merged that one there. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about yeah, the impact of, of fans and the big growth that's been happening in, in um, female readers in particular, sort of coming out where they, they used to be sort of hidden online mm. or at the comic cons and, and now they're sort of out there saying we love comics? Um, I've got a wonderful story that's not my own. Um, but actually, I don't know if Jess West is here, uh, but she's been a massive supporter of mine. Um, and so this was a, a great story about Jess living in Geelong in the 90s. And 
there was one comic shop and she went to the one comic shop and I think they said to her, oh, you're the second girl we've ever had in here. Um, <laughs> and which, I mean, that's not uncommon. Um, and she said, what does that girl buy? I want to read every comic she reads. Um, <laughs> and that's how she got into, I think, X-Men. Um, and so this idea that, uh, you know, there's always been women comic readers, uh, you know, in... in when newsstands were popular, they were everywhere on the street. They could talk to each other. Um, and what comic shops for a while, um, and certainly in a lot of shops like All Stars, not anymore. Um, well, they were in milk bars. I remember as a kid, you used to mm, find comics in milk bars. Absolutely. Um, and they they created quite a homogenous culture. And even though girls never stopped reading comics, um, they stopped being a community. Um, yeah, and yeah. they stopped knowing each other. And so you didn't have a group of fans who could then mobilise and ask for change. Um, they couldn't see uh, creators that they could aspire to being and start to change the narrative themselves. Um, and that's really sort of like we sort of just go social media, change things, but social media is a platform. It doesn't actually do anything. Um, and I think what it really facilitated was, um, yeah, was connection and community and not feeling like yeah. the only girl. Well, maybe tell us a little bit about the women's, Women in Comics uh, book club and how that started up. The club completely started from that, uh, from that ideology, um, from conversations with Jess and conversations with uh, Marjorie Lou as well, um, about how, yeah, that was the change that we saw. We knew girls who read comics, um, but we didn't have any, any sort of particular reason to talk about comics other than we just love them um and every every month that we have this club that we've been running for two and a half years there's a new girl who's never met another girl who's read comics or has never read comics on her own and um every single month there's a group of people going you know you're part of our group now um and we have we we have creators a huge number of um of self-published uh and indie creators who come to the club and are part of it um and so i think yeah, girls are starting to realise how much. Yeah, they're not um, they're not intruders as readers, and um, and that they're not purely receptive to comics. That they can actually yeah become creators in their own right, and it's not this sort of barricade that was perceived at the time. Sarah, do you want to? Add yeah, um, I mean, my work in comics is more at the kind of micro level of like, how does this cross hatching, or like, or the like the darkness of this line work, or this negative space like manifest some kind of theme, or like, how does um, you know like the chronology of this timeline, you know, reflect trauma, that kind of thing. So um, I don't really study fan culture or the industry stuff specifically, but yeah, definitely personally, anecdotally, I would totally reiterate what Naya said. I mean, I think that one of the, I think that internet is really wonderful for in terms of like um, getting people into comics through web comics, through like, you know, reviews and like, and I definitely, you know, no one could say, especially after Gamergate, that the internet is a safe space for women, mm -hmm. especially around nerd cultures. But um, I think that there are certain ways that people, you know, like on sort of more magazine-y blogs mm -hmm. that they can start seeing like comics reviewed. They start seeing some like someone they like on Twitter, you know, talking about a comic and then that kind of feeds mm -hmm. through. And, um, and I think, I mean, definitely you know, the, the classic comic book shop is still, like, a really important hub. But I think that um, 
There's also been an interesting shift, especially because I mostly read and study like non-fiction comics and kind of book-length comics. Um, but there's been a strange kind of shift in the last maybe like 10, 20 years around respectability politics. And I think that that's like quite uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, if people see like things like Fun Home, you know, like winning Pulitzers and stuff like that, that can often be like a sort of gateway drug mm. into like <laughs> the rest of the field. And so I think that that's... That's definitely part of it. I think, yeah. for, for me, I think one of the, uh, I guess the most exciting, and it sort of gives me hope and, and um, in, in the culture, is that when there was that kind of Gamergate um, response in the comic book mm. world about you know, why more women writers and why more female superheroes, um, yes, there were the, the, the nasties who got online, but there were even more men who got online who said, it's time things change. We want mm. more interesting characters, more diverse characters. Uh, and that was fabulous to see. Yeah. I think uh, the response to, to Mockingbird recently, mm. um, for anyone who doesn't know, the creator was essentially hounded off of Twitter, mm. off of social media, because a, a cover came out that said, ask me about my feminist agenda. And that was the main character reading that. And it took ages for them to actually decide that this was a thing that they were going to hate. Um, but it happened, <laughs> and it was after the book was already cancelled. But that, in the wake of that, within two three days, that book was then number one on Amazon. Mm. wasn't even right. out yet, Jeez. and the yeah. second book was in the top ten. Not even you know, it was nine months away. Eat a dick, haters. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and the women's comic club immediately went. Uh, you know, this needs to be our book. It actually happened exactly. uh, right like days before our Halloween meetup. Um, and everyone came in costume and we had a costume competition and the winner of the costume competition uh, was a wonderful girl called Sally who came in a t-shirt that she'd made that day that said, ask me about my feminist <laughs> agenda. She brought in a juice that uh, Mockingbird's holding on the cover. She, she, every part of it was just perfect and a wonderful example of how quickly, um, you know, something like putting on a costume became a huge statement and so yeah. we put our uh, pick our books a couple of months ahead for what we're going to do in a sort of book club style and there's a very conscious effort to do uh, gold events and black oh, magic yeah. um, okay. and oh hopefully all the girls next um, or tomorrow at the festival will be bringing in their copies of gold events and we're going to oh, talk yeah. about it in a couple yeah. of days um, and, if you get and any cosplay please send me photos yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we um, yeah we very much try to yeah to everyone's talking about it regardless of whether it's the book or not mm. um Maybe yeah. I'll just ask one more question, then when we can start sort of uh, having people come down. But I'm really interested in what kinds of things run through your mind when you're creating your characters. Like, are there things that you're particularly aware of? Um, not only in terms of, say, if, it's a, if it, it is a kind of franchise character um, that she, you know, she has to do this and this and this in the story, but in terms of trying to flesh the characters out and, and even, you know, in, in illustrations to make them. Um, I guess more like normal people, more like a kind of be part of our reality, if you like, and um, to strip away the kind of sexist um, right. norms that have been there for so many decades. Uh, the, the main thing that I think about when I'm writing characters is um, try, write, trying to write women as being pretty assertive and bold. Yeah. yeah. Um, as sort of designing you know the visual look of characters um it's always in quite a bit of consultation with the writer uh you know working out the core of who these people are um my my art style generally 
with my characters is that they're reasonably uber uh, physically, but they're still realistically proportioned. You know, I don't do waspy waists. Um, Big bazookas. And, well, you know, some char- some women have them, but, you know, if they've got them, they're not up here, they're down here. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it, it's also, you know, uh, uh, it really depends on... on what that character, you know, what that, what's, what is true for that character. If I'm drawing Catwoman, uh, she's, she uses her sexuality as part of her arsenal. Yeah. Um, she should be sexy, but it's on her terms and it's aggressive. Mm. Where if I'm drawing Supergirl, she's, you know, beautifully little proportioned teenager, but there shouldn't be anything sexualized about that uh drawing you know wonder woman which i've been doing you know on and off at dc for for 10 years and i've probably got you know five or six different versions because it's very specific to what's the story we're telling what's the context in which the story takes place Mm. i need to design a wonder woman that still looks like my wonder woman but is also relevant to the story at hand so you know my blackest night wonder woman was very different to my classic wonder woman yeah. which was different to my year one wonder woman which was different to our earth two wonder mm. woman you know it's they're, they're they're all the same character but there there is a different context that's a great point actually, and yeah. it's it's a slight difference in how i approach the art but it's also got to be a slight difference in how i'll approach her face mm. how i'll how i'll approach her physique how I'll approach her costume and the proportions of her costume. Um, you know, Wonder Woman is one of those characters that uh, often gets tarred with being over-sexualized, but she, she wasn't traditionally over-sexualized. You know, when she was created in the 40s, her wearing, you know, a, a, a bustier and shorts was her empowerment. That was her saying to the people of the 40s, what's the problem, you know? Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line, the 90s, um, she got <laughs> her, her outfit suddenly beca- became a lot smaller and her body became more unwieldy. And the recovery from that has been so sort of ridiculous and, and not very well handled to the point where at one point she was wearing pants and a jacket, which doesn't speak... F- for the character at all, but it, it made some women feel like now that's empowered because she's not showing off her skin. But it's like she's not she's not vulnerable, mm. and she's not um, she's she's not self conscious enough to sort of feel the need to cover up. So, but you know, by the same token, her costume's got a goddamn fit, <laughs> and you know, kind of how it is in in the comics and in the the film adaptation. It is probably about as perfect a modern version of her original interpretation should be. You know, it's it's a it's a warrior outfit that doesn't need to cover up that much because she's invulnerable. I also think she has your voice. 
voice. You can write <laughs> like, oh, she speaks I'll like I'll take you. that. I love yeah. Gal Gadot's voice. I think it should be, <laughs> be and delicious on the comics where you can press and you talk like Wonder Woman. <laughs> Sorted. I'm going to read it that way now. Tom, how about you with construct, creating um, X-23? Uh, look, uh, particularly with Laura, uh, who's the only Wolverine up there, top left, uh, we physically... we went straight back to basics. We actually built her up from the top down exactly where she'd come from, who she was, because there'd, there'd been this period of time, the 90s, um, where, <laughs> where basically she started to be drawn really way thin and massive cleavage and her kidneys exposed for anyone to stab, um, which made no sense to us. And we're like, well, no, she's the clone of Logan. He's a short, runty guy. Yeah. So we made her about 5'4". We... We gave her a weightlifter's body and muscled her up and yeah. gave her big thighs and just like just made her ready to kick people's ass. Um, but I guess that's that's the physicality of it, and we've made sure we've been fairly consistent with all the artists since. But from a character sense, we, I guess it's it's she's a really difficult character. She's not Wonder Woman. She's someone who's mm. been through so much trauma and people who've been through trauma identify with her and we can't just forget about where she's come from. I mean, she was a cutter. She was somebody who lived on the streets and she had a pimp when she was underage and you can't forget all of that side of her story. Um, and our story is very much dealing with her sort of coming into a place where she can be a hero but not forgetting where she's come from. Yeah. How much feedback and input do you have? And, and you do hope, given that both of you do mainly focus on the writing, I guess, do you um, do you meet with the artists and, and discuss how you want the character to look, um, to to reflect certain aspects of, of her personality more? Or and I'm thinking here in particular about Batgirl, I guess, mm -hmm. but also other characters. How much do you communicate with your artists? Um, well, with Batgirl, we're we're still working off of the the um, incarnation from the the previous run the so she's version. not mm. we're not really reinventing anything there mm -hmm. and I don't feel like I have to give any direction for the way she looks because mm. we've got this established model of her already uh, yeah, it was so radical and wonderful too I, I love her the way she is <laughs> yeah um, with like Goldie Ants for example I honestly I very rarely put character description in for like visuals um, that's all Brittany. What I like to do is let the artist take a crack at it, bring what they want to bring to it, unless, you know, the way a character looks is really important to the story. So in that and sense, it's like we worked film. off them a little bit. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, I treat it more like casting. Yeah. And it's worked out really well. I mean, getting to work with Brittany that way and giving her the freedom to design all, the whole cast the way she wanted to, mm. that... We, we found those characters together. And it doesn't work to um, put a project together with every team, but for that one it did, and it was just a joy. Fabulous. All right, we might start um, taking some questions from the audience. So anyone who'd like to ask a question, please come down. Come down. Come down. Scaredy cats. Don't be scared, that's right. Yay! Come on down. <laughs> Actually, while people are coming down, yeah, I'd, I'd actually love to ask Paul Dini, yeah. who's sitting in the front row here, uh, what your, um, your, if you've got anything you'd like to respond to in terms of what we've been talking about. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole thing. And uh, there was one um, question that did kind of work in my mind when 
dealing with the accessibility of comics. And since the 1990s, we've seen um, a rise of the uh, brick and mortar comic book store. And that has really uh, limited, I feel, uh, the accessibility of comics, particularly to girls, particularly to women. And in talking to people about when they had their first comic book buying experience, usually people I talk to between 25 and 50, I guess, say it was usually a supermarket or a drugstore or a 7-Eleven or a place like a convenience store, something like that. And I noticed that that, and, and I'm just throwing this out to see if you agree or if there's a point of discussion here, should the comics be brought back into places like that to a more of a safe ground? Because the comic book stores, you know, as they were in the 90s to the present day, are fine. You can get a, a great assortment of things there. You can get toys and action figures and collectibles. But a lot of them are uh, extensions of like a comic book club with a very select clientele. And I hadn't really thought about that till my brother, who has a couple of kids, once said to me, there's no unwelcome, more unwelcome place for a child to be than a comic book store because he had gone in looking for Batman comics for his kids. And again, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, uh, put off by the place terribly or he didn't feel, you know, conspicuous or anything like that, but he just noted that it was, there were no girls, there were no kids, and there were no mothers. And um, that's something I'd like to see come back is the comics put in a more of a neutral ground, not only um, for a more diverse readership to pick up the comics, but also to uh, just um, heighten their availability. Um, is that is that something that is that even worth possible with the diamond? Yeah. shipping. <laughs> That's part of that problem. Is this yeah. industrial yeah. level of they, homogeneity? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Can um, you explain what you mean by that? Oh, me? Oh, right. Um, well, it was kind of in the 90s, was it not, when, when Diamond Distribution kind of cornered the market on dis distributing right. all American comics. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, even, even you know, brick-and-mortar comic retailers say it's such a nightmare dealing with this company, this one company that they have to order everything from. Why on earth would newsagents and drugstores and stuff you know, it's it's not accessible broadly right. anymore. But I will say too that it's also the most accessible it's ever been because we have the internet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I mean, the last time I checked the figures, I think it was forty eight percent of readership are women now, mm -hmm. and that's of yeah. mainstream comics. That's DC and Marvel forty eight percent, and that's because fantastic. I mean, it might not be. Yes, there are still some terrible stores out there that aren't welcoming, but then you've got places like All Star Comics that yeah. right. I, I absolutely have everything. to um, have yeah. to stand up for All Star and <laughs> yeah. yeah, and right. Kings um, Comics in Sydney. Most of mm. the staff are girls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, but certainly the internet, I think, has changed things. It's everyone was terrified. These brick and mortar stores were so scared of digital. Yeah, but it's just brought more people to the medium. Yeah. I remember when I first worked up the, worked up the courage because we used to get them in what we call milk bars in in Australia and news agents and so on. And um, I remember when I first tried to work up the courage in the late eighties, nineties to walk into a comic book store because it was all male dominated. It was. Mm -hmm. it was How many women in the room have had to um, give themselves a pep talk? I have. They were super mean <laughs> to me the first couple of times mm -hmm. I tried to give 
by comics. Let's mm. get them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, into but, my 20s. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. I and you, you don't know that with every store you go into. I remember All Star, um, they had a massive flyer campaign for a, an opening sale. And uh, my partner and I went, oh, let's check this place out. And went in and day one, just so unbelievably lovely. The kind of yep. place where, and this is the comics industry relies on this to some degree. It doesn't just have to be a good shop. It has to be a shop you want to go to every Wednesday. Um, Like how many, who goes to a shop every single week other than a supermarket? Um, And uh, not just a comic shop, like any shop. Um, I like how many mm. people put their hands up then and just went, oh, she's still talking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do every, yeah. They're all talking about All Star, you could tell. And I also think, I think it's a really interesting point about accessibility because even though this is maybe like a fantasy point, like just even the expense of comics, I think, is something Mm. that is actually a big sticking point, right? And I don't want to devalue like artists and writers' work. Like obviously I don't want, you know, producers to get any less money or more money, but like comics can be really expensive. I mean, especially like in Australia and New Zealand, books are really expensive. Like, Mm The kind of comics that I like to read, like are often like forty to sixty dollars each. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if we're talking about diversity, then you know, if these books are really expensive, like it's restrictive for people who earn a lower wage, and that's yeah. a demographic. <laughs> yeah, and like you know, like women learn, earn less money, and then when you start adding like you know, like people of colour and like um, and trans people, you know, like the yeah access to disposable income just drops and drops and drops. Mm-hmm. So it's also another. Yeah, it's difficult. Just yeah. to like jump back to the um, the supermarket thing real quick. Yeah. Didn't Shoujo Beat take a crack at that market a few years ago? I, I believe so. I, I don't um, know if you guys had that here or not. That was Tokyo Pop's um, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. manga anthology. I know that uh, in the States, Archie Comics has a, a point of purchase, like with their anthologies and digests, right, by the mm-hmm. cash register. And I asked about that about 20 years ago at DC, and I said, why are you not putting something there because you know a kid likes the tactile feeling of something that's just for them and especially now when there are things that are more like like DC superhero girls uh, you could put something like that at the supermarket yeah. and that I think is a gateway to oh I got a comic book then they can go online and then you know uh, check out comicsology or something like that but uh, every time I bring up that question it's always like yeah, Archie got in there. They pay a fortune for that spot. We're not, we're not prepared to go there. And I always felt that was unfortunate because, mm. other than Archie and I think Disney had a, you know, a magazine there that was showing up there for a while, that that was really kind of a missed opportunity for the Disney the adventures. big guys to get something in there. And then you go somewhere like Japan, and you've got you know seven stories of the stuff. Yeah. And you know, there's maybe probably more women. Um, go to buy manga and and um, all of the other kind of products, you know, manga products and, and collectibles and so on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The shops are not inherently the problem and they will continue to serve a really valuable role. Sure. Um, and I, I think a much faster way to address it would be to uh, encourage these shops that there are so many people who want to go in um, and you do have to be able to reach out to them. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, it is something that can't just sort of be assumed to happen. If maybe we could have our first question. Oh, there's a microphone there. Just run up. Just lean in. It's Mockingbird. <laughs> it isn't. I misrecognised you. I'm is sorry. <laughs> is it on? Yes. Hey. Yeah. Um, this is one of the... 
sort of, it's kind of a question, but hopefully a start for a conversation, but it is specifically directed at Hope to start with. Um, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, but, but also to some extent, Sarah, because um, my reading background and also comics drawing background is more an interest in uh, more the the books and graphic novels, more the independent uh, long-form comics. And as Hope has said, there's actually a huge amount of women creating those and they're fantastic. Um, my knowledge of Hope's work comes more from Chiggers and Mercury. Oh, thanks. Which I love, <laughs> yeah. And I'm just uh, interested in how it's been going from that world to a more of a mainstream kind of comics world. Uh, sort of as a woman, but also just as a creator and also going from all the drawing to focusing a lot on writing. And I'd just love to hear more about that experience and maybe if after that, the discussion of other people's crossover with those two worlds. Sure. Um, it's It's been a, a pretty long transition for me, actually. Um, after I did Wrinkle on Time, I sort of burned out pretty hard on the drawing part and decided I wanted to focus more on writing and working with other artists. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to start doing was to start writing more genre-based, action-adventure-type books. Uh, Compass South, which is my, my pirates and uh, my, my piratey book is the thing that I wrote right after doing Wrinkle in Time. So by the time I was approached by DC about writing for that, for Batgirl, I already had some work that was kind of in a similar vein to the work that they were publishing. Like I, I knew how to write action, I had scripts to hand them and I had a finished graphic novel to hand them that was like, okay, I don't have any superhero work, I haven't done any, but I have this, and it's close enough that I think you can see how I could do this job. Um, and I, I really, really enjoyed working for DC. It's my editors are super smart. I like getting to know this new format, which is very condensed and has a lot of rules. But I like rules, so um, it's been a good fit. I'm learning a lot. It's taken me about a year to really get my bearings and to feel comfortable writing writing those books without just like freaking out every month. <laughs> but I, it's, it's great. Is it nice to just be part of a team? I guess yes. it's from being really isolated. Yeah. Like um, you were saying, uh, Nicola, about that it's quite an intense world, the mainstream comics, but it also the world of making something just by yourself and being a solo creator is a different kind of intense I yeah, guess. Yeah. Well, I haven't worked like Hope as a writer and artist yeah. uh, on on any project, but having sort of left DC to go and do a creator-owned project um, with Black Magic, uh, I I was kind of in a in a privileged position that the writer that I was working with were you know was an old friend of mine and also experienced in both worlds, but I was I was surprised stupidly surprised by just how much I had to weigh in on you know like everything we, we started having a five-hour conversation about font and I was like <laughs> I, why, why, why am I caring about this <laughs> but as soon as the conversation starts and we start talking about choices it's like oh my god I'd actually have an opinion 
you know, I, I didn't realise. And and th- that in itself is quite a sort of interesting, you know, when, when you own a project that you you have to be responsible for every last decision, even if it's not your, you know, we, we have a great graphic designer doing, you know, all of our graphic designing and we have a great letterer and we have a great editor and, and I found myself a great colorist. Um, but sort of having to have the, f- the final say on everything is significantly more engaging than get th- getting the script, doing the work, shipping it off, and saying thanks very much what's the next bit you know like certainly for for the last five or six years at dc um i always wanted to make sure i got a lettering proof i always wanted to make sure i saw the colors before anything went to print because i i know that i have you know strong opinions about this that and the other but i'm not the bottom line for any of it because Mm -hmm. you are part of a, a team and you know it makes a big difference when you have a great editorial team um, as part of your team than when you have a, a you know, missing in action editor, yeah. which I've also had on a couple of books here and there. It gives you great freedom to get away with all kinds of crap, but <laughs> it's also incredibly frustrating because you, you end up having to just make do with just two, vo- you know, two opinions on on shit that needs to get done. Yeah, I'm, I'm never comfortable if I don't have a strong editor. Yeah, I really I like getting feedback. I like getting another pair of eyeballs, crit- really critical eyeballs. I Absolutely. like really intense hardcore editors, and that's what I have at my book publisher. And when I moved over to DC, I was like, "Edit me hard, please." Like, <laughs> I, I like that. And you're I, in I the Batman office, right? Yes, they're a great group of people. Yes, Mark, Mark, yeah. Mark Doyle and uh, um, Rebecca Taylor. Yeah, me too. Sarah, did you want to respond? I mean, I don't, I guess, like, in terms of crossover stuff, like, my reading is still very much in, like, yeah, the long-form indie press stuff. I was, like, I need to get more into it, so I read Bitch Planet, which is amazing, (laughs) but it's still not really, you know, big two producers. So, yeah, so I don't, at the moment, have, like, a lot of comments about, you know, that that move from that world, but, yeah, I just, um, I find that... Yeah, that indie world, like very, like it's incredibly diverse and rich field, and and I'm so glad that as Hope pointed out, like there are actually like there's a huge amount of women like writing and publishing in those fields, and it is really diverse and yeah. So and I mean one thing is I was thinking about this. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. And even I was thinking about this because sometimes when we say woman and whatever, there's sort of this implication of white woman um, and whatever. And I was thinking about a lot of my favourite writers and I realised it was a very white list. And, and I think that's something to think about as well, like that we don't just get fo- you know stay focused too much on, on gender in a traditional sense that, you know, to think yeah. more intersectionally and, and to seek it out in our own work and like our own reading mm. and also to, yeah, just to discuss it. And, yeah. Well, yeah. Hope said this yesterday about the idea of just um, just making sure that apart from uh, a, a drive towards equity in a workplace, just having these stories told with honesty mm. um, was so important. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank okay. you. Thank you. Next question. Yep. All right. Um, thank you so much for letting me come down here. Uh, uh, for uh, we we're talking about many of the most you can hear me yeah, about the most famous female characters today in comic books. But w- one of the most famous ones, and one of those most iconic ones, is Harley Quinn. 
and yeah, we have the creator here, right here that today. That guy, he's alive. There he is. There he is. There we. That's the guy. Thanks. That's the guy. That's the guy. <laughs> that's the guy. So, um, but it's so hard to. I mean, I mean, there are many strong women like um, Wonder Woman, and there's uh, you know uh, so many tough girls like the all new Wolverine. Even though Tom Taylor, great job on on her body. Yeah, but there's only one Harley Quinn on that part, you know. So, I mean, how she sticks out, how she's iconic and how she works in her way. So, I want to ask you, right in front of the guy who created her, who is Harley Quinn to each one of you guys? <laughs> starting with you, oh, Tom. Yep, starting thanks. with you, right there. Uh, look, I have been very, very fortunate uh, that I've gotten to write Harley Quinn quite a lot. Um, and a lot of what I've written has gone on and people who don't know that I've written stuff know my work from... Tumblr or whatever, yes. um, and Harley is just probably one of my favourite characters in the world to write. Um, there's something, there's something very indescribable about her, but at the same time, there's this, there's this tragedy mixed with unbelievable comedy. She can say anything. She can be the person uh, who tells the emperor they're wearing no clothes, and if the emperor is wearing clothes, she pulls down their pants and then laughs at them and takes photos and puts it on Facebook. Um, but she is just, she is this incredible character and I feel very fortunate to write her and I've been writing her again this week. Um, but yay! Yay. Um, and yeah, thank you, Paul. I just, she makes me very happy. Oh, thanks, man. That's a bit nice. Thanks. Um, yeah, no, I don't think there's many characters like her and there needs to be a lot more characters that aren't just the person who puts on a cape and punches the bad guy in the face because their parents died. Yeah. Like, I, I haven't had the chance to draw her often. I've drawn her maybe a couple of times. Um, you know, she was briefly in Secret Six uh, and I've done a couple of pinups and covers. But she's, I think, what makes her so sort of enduring and fascinating is exactly what you were saying. She's so complicated mm. that, you know, th there's this mercurial nature that is, it's so hard to pin down. That is what keeps giving her life and keeps making her interesting for, you know, writer, you know, it's an, it's, a, she's one of those characters where if you get the opportunity it is an opportunity that you shouldn't and can't blow. Yep. You know? I mean, she comes from an incredible place of trauma. Yeah. I mean, all the things that... Her, her whole personality was just torn to shreds, in a sense, and mm. she's having to remake herself. Do any of you have anything to say about... Um, I, I would actually definitely disagree that there's only one Harley Quinn, because as soon as you said right. um, <laughs> there's only one yeah. Harley Quinn, I thought of, uh, so uh, as part of Superheroes, we talked at um, Supernova this year, and there were at least 100 Harley Quinns. Yeah. Um, and all of them were wonderful. And one thing I really like about it is, uh, I think, and part of what um, speaks so much to uh, girls about it is that Harley Quinn is a very, like it's part of her sort of super persona that she's incredibly imperfect. Um, and I think that allows where, you know, in, in some cases it's great to aspire to, um, you know, everything that a super person could be. But uh, Harley Quinn, even as a, a comic book character, wasn't originally a comic book character. And I think that makes her 
um, for a newcomer to comics um, or to, to comics culture uh, to sort of broaden it out to television and other media that she appears in and appears completely different in uh, every one of those incarnations, like a character with a huge number of revisions that's redone every time a girl decides to dress as her, is that you're allowed to get Harley Quinn wrong. Um, because Harley Quinn gets Harley Quinn wrong. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and, and like that's a great, great character to have because, you know, I, like, I could go like this and you guys would be like, oh, the wrong side of your hair is blue. <laughs> and that would be okay. Um, and that would still be a very Harley Quinn thing to do. So I think she's become a wonderful point of access for yeah. girls who are afraid about getting things wrong. And uh, <laughs> uh, for whole families too. In, in my house, uh, I get a lot of Harley Quinns at uh, Halloween and it's great when I see a little girl uh, as Harley Quinn and her dad as Harley Quinn also wearing <laughs> a daddy's little monster <laughs> shirt. And just, it's like Peter Pan. They just have a lot of fun being that character. Yeah. I, had, I had a little girl show up as Harley Quinn this Halloween. And we, I live in Australia, so we don't get a lot of this. And I in instantly ran and got a Harley Quinn print and signed it for her. And she's like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. I meet a lot of actual little girls named Harley Quinn at signings and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Really? Yes. I've met at least two in the last year. And they'll be getting Harley Quinn right their entire lives. Because uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the 90s, we're blaming the 90s a lot for things, aren't we? But in the 90s when parents used to name their kids after soap stars, so you'd, you know, you'd have, um, I don't know, Hope and... No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Hope. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, Stargazer. <laughs> And now everyone's naming their kids after comic book. I love it. All right, we've got a question before I put more foot in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> my middle name is Stargazer. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, had a question starting with Tom, but I think applies to Nicola and Hope as well. So, Tom, in kind of the mainstream comics industry, you kind of built up a brand primarily based off like Injustice and Superior Iron Man, of doing stories about superheroes who go really bad. But yeah. I feel like all new Wolverine has kind of changed. I, I didn't want Good. to make you sad, <laughs> yeah. Tom. I, I know it makes you sad when I say that. Uh, but I feel like all new Wolverine has kind of changed the way you're perceived by a lot of people within comics in terms of the type of superhero stories you can do. And similarly, um, Nicola, you went from doing pretty much exclusively work for hire for DC to doing Black Magic, which is amazing, by the way, if you haven't read it. It's Thanks. my favorite work of yours that you've ever, ever you. done. It's so pretty. Um, and hope you've moved from kind of self-publishing and book publishing to working uh, at DC. So what's the experience for you guys as creators in doing work that goes against what maybe your perceived brand is to the larger comics right. industry? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's very strange that that was my pursued brand because I started as a playwright. My first comic was a, was based on a play. It was on over there and it was about a briefcase on Flinders Street Station. And that got turned into a comic and that got me a gig writing Star Wars. And apparently Star Wars wasn't big enough for people to notice. So it was only when I got Injustice and I started writing Superman as a dick that people were like, hey, this, this guy will be good at this. And I'm like, no, don't. I, I like hope and joy and yayness. Um, I don't want to write. Just I know, I know how to make him look like he's in pain. Thanks. <laughs> I know how he, to make him look like he's in pain because I know how to hurt him because I love him. Um, but I don't want to hurt him. Mm -hmm. 
Like when I got the gig and I was told that I, sorry for anyone who doesn't know this, I always bring this up. Why do I bring this up? Because I need the therapy. Um, <laughs> I was told that I had to kill, have Superman kill Lois Lane and their unborn child. I mean, that destroyed me. I called my mum, who's sitting there, and I said, Mum, they're making me write Superman for the first time and they want me to do this to him and Lois. Um, and it destroyed me. Um, and then Marvel, like, we love what you're doing. We want, you, we want to give you Iron Man. I'm like, yay! And he's evil. Ugh. <laughs> and on Earth 2 as well. Yeah, and on Earth 2 as well. And we fought. And that's, he's Superman and he's a bad and guy. And he's a dick, yay! Um, so Nicola and I then created our own Superman, yay. Black Superman, Velzod, on Earth 2. Yes, to sort of counteract that. And he was a pacifist, because yeah. screw you. <laughs> Super, yeah. Um, but no, I'm glad that the brand has moved, because I just want to tell... Happy joy stories. I also have a TV series that's on around the world that has no violence. So, yeah, hopefully people know that too. <laughs> We're getting there. Um, yes, yeah, certainly for, for me, my history with creating art was, was painting. Um, and it was only because of my decision to, you know, make a career out of drawing comics uh, you know, at a point in time when I actually had no idea what that meant, but it was like, that's what I'm going to do now. Um, and sort of spending the next couple of years sort of learning what that decision meant and working out where the money was and all this kind of stuff and, and realising, okay, I'm going to have to be a penciler and then spending 10 years only working in pencil. Um, that was really satisfying in sort of sort of really developing and... and delving into that as a skill because I, I felt very limited in what I could achieve with a pencil uh, and just line work at the very beginning. Um, and certainly by the time uh, I left DC, I felt like, you know, I've got a pretty good handle on how to get the special effects that I want and the the hatching, you know, styles and such, you know, which I, terrified me at the beginning. I was like, I don't, I don't understand hatching. It's freaking me out. Um, and, you know, every time I started a new title, a new project, I got to sort of, you know, slightly jig my style. But part of the point of leaving DC was to not get too entrenched on the monthly book churning out circuit because, you know, it's working very hard uh, in a very pressured situation for every goddamn dollar. Um and I, I, I needed to break out from that. It was like, if I'm ever going to sort of get more prestige work, I'm going to have to prove that I can do prestige work under my own um, steam. And so that was why I was like, you know, I need to leave DC and go and do something creator-owned. Uh, and with Greg and Black Magic, the sort of the, the going back and starting to paint a book um, just came out of experimenting with how I kind of, the, the amoebus version of how I saw the book in my head and then sort of finding a reality way to then produce that and produce it in a way that I knew I could continue to produce it page after page, issue after issue. And it got down to the point where it was like, I, I can remember thinking, oh God, I'm going to be painting this, aren't I? Um, I hope I can keep up. And finding a way to sort of make that uh, an achievable, repeatable skill. Um, and, you know, certainly the, the reaction that people have given me is 
surprised that that's something that I could do. And it's like, well, that's what I used to do. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's great to be able to pick up a paintbrush again. And in fact, you know, for most of this year while we've been working on Wonder Woman, um, which I decided to ink because it was like I'm going to bore myself stupid if I'm just penciling and I'm going to get really frustrated because it's a, it's a dream project. Um, if the inking isn't as precious as I want it to be because, you know, um, I get super control freaky and I've just had a year of just being able to be the boss of everything. Um, I decided that I would ink it because that's the way that I'll keep myself interested in the doing of the work. Um beyond the storytelling and the character stuff. Mm. And, you know, that nearly killed me. But it, it was really fascinating to do and, and nice to know that I have that skill in my arsenal now and I didn't feel like I had it before. So it's, you know, the, the part of it is just not wanting to... I just don't want to get bogged down. I don't want to find myself doing the same art style in 20 years and it's not fashionable anymore. Mm. But, you know, someone's throwing me a bone because I'm pathetic. I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to sort of keep myself interested uh, as well as sort of keeping an old school fan base uh, amused. That's great. Yeah. Maybe a quick, another question from the other don't side of the room. That's a cue in the dark. Just talk into it. All right, now it's on. Um, I've got a question I'd like to direct at Hope. And Nicola, you might want to weigh in on this as well. I'm interested in, um, like, going back to your early days, like your first few books, like Salamander Dreams, Mm -hmm. Grey Horses, and... Uh, what was next? Chiggers. Chiggers, is that, is that right or have I missed one? Uh, no, those were the first three. Yeah, and, and then kind of like through the book publishing mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I'm interested in knowing what your experience was like, like working with those publishers. And I'm interested in knowing whether there was any positive or negative gender bias through those experiences and through the sort of general comic scene or industry back in that sort of 10 years, 15 years ish ago whenever that was. And then Nicola, I'm interested if you'd like to weigh in on the whole positive versus negative gender bias. Sure. Uh, not so much now, but, sorry, not so much now, but you know, in that 10, 15, roughly years ago kind of time frame. Is that clear? Yeah. Um, I, I think that I was definitely encouraged when I was really, really starting out, largely because there was this conversation about getting more women into creative roles in comics. Um, and that was really how I got my start. So I benefited from that at the beginning. And what I noticed happening, and this may have been your experience too, Nicola, is that you are encouraged if you're a young woman, like a young, non-threatening, like early 20s <laughs> cartoonist. And then once you get to a certain point in your career, it, you really have to fight for it right. a bit. Um, which happened when I was like, I guess around 30, I noticed it getting kind of hard. And then you get over that hump and you're sort of part of the establishment, which is also a weird feeling. For for me, I didn't start until I was 29. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, 
at the starting block at that point of knowing nothing and having no real history with even reading comic books, let alone creating them, and being so far away from where the industry proper is, um, I think I sort of just had the good fortune of being a little, you know, be, being older and having, being more sure of myself, but at the same time knowing I don't know anything. So I'm going to be asking the dumb questions and some people are just going to think you're dumb or you're a dumb girl or you're a whatever and just not be bothered by it and I just wasn't and and Mm. you know this is 15 years ago this is sort of you know 2001 was the first San Diego comic-con that I went to and I I was just sort of I was so one-track minded in my mission of getting what I want that and I'm, I'm also sort of a pretty Teflon kind of person not a lot sort of not a lot sticks and there are definitely times when I know uh you know some some stuff was sort of thrown my way and my nature is to laugh it off because I think it's embarrassing for the guy that might be slinging it (laughs) and I'll sort of laugh and go oh that's embarrassing anyway and so they don't lose face (laughs) (laughs) They, they, they don't lose face and they also have no impact and so I think I kind of possibly managed to sort of get some camaraderie from guys that might be guilty of giving chicks a hard time just because they couldn't give me a hard time. Um, there, there was, uh, there've definitely been a couple of times, um, very early on, uh, a big editor at one of the big companies, um, had a look through my portfolio and he said, are you sure this is what you want to be doing? Are you sure you don't want to just be drawing children's books and while that sounds really dismissive I do also have to sort of say you know the portfolio that he was looking at was a first time as portfolio it was a portfolio that clearly had no direction and no strong idea so I don't I don't want to sort of tar him with a guilt brush but then he's avoided me ever since (laughs) um possibly because I was like no, I want to do this. And he was like, oh, okay, well, good luck to you. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I, I've seen him reasonably regularly f- over the last 15 years and there's no, hey, how you doing, congratulations. It's all just sort of like, whoa, that's that scary girl again. <laughs> um, and while I was at DC, there were definitely a couple of times when I got sudden leap up the ladder opportunities both those times, no, is that true? Yes, both those times, uh, one specific editor who I had been seeing from the very beginning, who doesn't have a great reputation with women, um, had said to me, now, Nicola, you're playing with the big boys up here. You're going to have to really deliver. To which, you know, in, in my head, I'm just like, fuck you. Are you actually paying attention to what I've been doing? But it also makes me go, 
well, I'll show him. <laughs> and I do deliver, you know, better than I've done before. So I kind of don't mind a little bit of a, a poke because it makes me go, just just wait, just settle down, asshole. I've, um, I've never gotten anything like that. So there, there have been really the only times that I've had any anything that sort of resembled um, misogyny kind of directed at me. And I've just, you know, I think I'm just lucky that I, I'm, part of it is being Australian, because I think, you know, that we're generally uh, less polite about (laughs) shit. (laughs) And also, um, you know, being an Australian in an America, I've got that otherness. So, you know, I'm, I'm constantly spotted as the, the Australian girl or the loud girl or the tall girl or the all, all, all of the above girl. And th- that has given me a, a, a shielding without me participating in that shielding. It's, it's there. It's, it's them feeling like I'm something other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> Our next question. <laughs> Just leave it on. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, in relation to the topic, it might be a little bit of a. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm going to be a little bit tangential. You know, in the 1980s, when you know Frank Miller was at his. Uh, greatest, he started bringing in a lot of the uh, Japanese sort of styling into the comics industry. And, you know, we started seeing that a bit more in the 90s. And a lot of, in that period, you know, that sort of style and people was like, oh, you know, this is like, it's okay that we have less words or stuff, you know, it's so exciting, it's new. And a lot of it was about the celebration, I guess, of violence, you know, with uh, Wicked City and all this, so like, a lot of uh, anime and Ghost in the Shell, which came out in the night, uh, I see, whoops. Um, but yeah, like all that sort of come up. Um, and, but a few like um, decades later, you know, in the height of 2000s, we started to see a lot of females getting into comics through manga, so Japanese comics. And I always remember uh, reading a particular article uh, from, uh, in a convention by, and Stan Lee was talking about why women don't read American comics. And he's like, well, is it perhaps that Japanese make comics for girls or is it because, you know, that we make comics for boys? Like uh, something along the lines of that. And uh, yeah, he was a little bit, um, uh, wasn't sure where, why females weren't going over into the, you know, Marvel and DC and stuff like that. Um, but also around that, in 2008, we had the global recession, and by the end of that, we had the manga bubble, which burst, and a lot of publishers went out of business, like Tokyo Pop and mm. all this sort of stuff. And so I was wondering, um, do you think that the influx of girls from around about the 2008 period onwards has been because that the uh, manga industry has died up and they've started to carve their way into the DC and Marvel? And do you think that the... Um, reactions that we get from fans to the new sort of stylings that we're starting to see in comics is because that this sort of like more simplified style, a little bit more joyful and happiness and stuff like that is actually generally geared towards girls. So asking if they may have some sort of misogynistic reactions to this sort of stuff. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I definitely think you're on... I definitely think that's a factor. I mean, I I started 
I started reading manga in high school and that was a big part of me getting back into comics and wanting to make comics because I loved those stories. They felt very accessible. They were fun. They weren't like anything I'd ever seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a group of friends at school and those, those books were really expensive at the time so we would take turns buying them and then we would pass them <laughs> around the school. Um, and then in the mid-2000s, yeah, there was manga everywhere. You could go to any any chain bookstore, and there would be like fifteen kids sitting on the floor just reading all the all the manga. And after that happened, I I heard a lot from professors who were teaching comics related courses that most of their students were women, mm-hmm. and they were coming up through manga. But I can't really speak to where all those female readers went after the manga bubble burst. That's an interesting thought. Mm. I never thought I think that. a lot of them went online. Um, yeah. I immediately yeah. went, well, 2008 is when Iron Man came out. Um, and so I think that also had a huge influence on an increase in readership, and it was the height of Chris Nolan's the Batman. The movies well. probably did, too. Yeah. The superhero um, movies, because exactly. every blockbuster was a... Mm, that's well, I, I got back into mainstream comics through, um, yeah, through seeing Iron Man and going... I'm going to pick this up again because I had read a little a little Marvel prior to that. But um, I wanted to ask what it was that you said that in high school manga got you back into comics. Yeah. What were you reading before? Um, well, I, I started reading comics when I lived in France for a year. So I was reading the European stuff, so Tintin and Asterix. And then I moved back and I, I couldn't really find any comics I really liked. I did have a brief elf quest period. <laughs> We've all had that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe another... T- People are stopping getting shy now, so, and we're running out of time. Yep. Go for it. Oh, um, uh, well, firstly, you're all fantastic. (laughs) Um, And I was wondering, uh, what would be either the most uh, impactful or your favorite comic that you haven't uh, worked on? Oh. Well, I think Sarah and I are going to say all of them. Um, yeah, like everything. <laughs> None of them. I haven't touched any of them, so it's very easy for me. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, what have I read lately, it's really great. It's really hard for me to pick one. I think maybe that's probably the case for you guys as well. I mean, I guess it's something that I'm studying and I just come back to again and again and I'm always dazzled by it. So part of my thesis is on Phoebe Gleckner and Alan Kimmett Crumb. And I'd have to say that, um, yeah, um, both of Phoebe Glickner's first two books, but I guess particularly A Child's Life, um, such as a collection of her works from the sort of, uh, I think there's a couple from the um, mid-70s through to like 1998, um, is just like really beautiful and devastating. And it's a really fascinating document um, because it's because it's comprised of like a lot of her different work and it really goes through, you know, there's a comic she was drawing as a teenager, there's a comics that she was drawing as an adult, there's fictional comics, there's autobiographical comics, there's um, paintings, there's like a poster that she did for Guns N' Roses, there's the medical illustrations that she did mm. for J.G. Ballard's Crash, which are crazy and amazing. Um, and it's just, yeah, both like as a showcase of like um, an artist's skills and development, but also, you know, she does like incredible stuff with, with time and with trauma and the representation of the self and with like anger. Um, and yeah, and I just, yeah, find it so rich and so compelling, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with Ghost World always because mm. that was the first time I read a comic that was just about two girls being girls. 
It's mm. one of the few that I return mm. to and reread. Um, I've spoken to Nicola about this. For me, uh, in terms of having an impact in a, in a creative way, if I could write anything, I would write Spider-Woman. Um, uh, she's not necessarily my favorite superhero, although she's right up there, but the character whose story I haven't felt has been told yet and I felt I could tell. Um, and went, no, I, I know what I want to say about Spider-Woman um, more than any of the other sort of superhero properties that already exist. Yeah. Um, because I didn't have comics in my life when I was young, I don't have a sort of nostalgic uh, throwback option. But I think the, the book that I've probably, you know, I think it's probably the only thing that I've read more than once um, because I do go back to it is a run of Madame Xanadu that Matt Wagner and Amy Rita did uh, 10 years ago or so, just because it's, you know, it's a little bit witchy-poo, which is very much up my alley, and it's so beautiful, and it spans so much time. I, I just, I'm a, a little enchanted by it. It speaks to me. Um, I have a very hard time with absolutes and naming one thing because there are so many. Yeah. It's like choosing between your nostrils. You, and you breathe through both. <laughs> um, it's weird. Uh, but certainly, I mean, it was books like Sandman that brought me back. Things that, you know, were, were sort of, you're allowed to read comics because this is legitimate. Um, and you're a teenager. Um, <laughs> Sandman. But then things like Garth Ennis, Warren Ellis, um, you know, Preacher is just, is always fantastic. Hitman. I actually like more, which was the one he did for DC at the same time. Yeah, that's that far less violent, but still incredible. It's like him needing to be restrained meant he could tell a better story. I'd write Hitman in a heartbeat. Um, nice. And obviously I'd write Superman action comics anytime anyone wants to give it to me. Hurry up. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, I think it's our final question. Sorry, everyone else who was in the queue. Yeah, all right. Um, yeah, this question is about uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, so there's that there's like a Kate Beaton comic about Wonder Woman when she's like yeah she's like at a bar and someone comes up to her like uh, I love you I'm a hero you're the best and woman's like but what what do you actually like about me right. like specifically like what do you really like and I think that this points to um, I think that uh, comic writers but like male comic writers especially they've always had trouble uh, defining defining Wonder Woman or finding like an identity for her that makes her. I feel like she's not as easy to tell stories about um, in the same way as uh, like Batman is, like Batgirl is, or like yeah. Catwoman is. There's a sense in which you can just put like Batgirl into a situation and have a story like generate itself. And I feel like uh, that that's perhaps more difficult for Wonder Woman because she's sort of uh, people have never been able to agree on to agree on a way to like define her or think about her and I want to know if you think that's true and if that's true like what do we it, sort of it, do about it it has been um you know with with any character that's been around for as long as she has like Superman and Batman there is an ebb and flow and there is you know f fashions that the characters have gone through but you know when Superman and Batman went through pretty goofy phases in the 50s and 60s Wonder Woman didn't go through a goofy phase. She went through a kind of pathetic phase because all of her agency was taken away from her and she became a romance character and then she became a depowered, decostumed, mm. like mm. no one character. You know, there, there, is, there is something to be said for the company and the creators have 
I think for the most part, always understood how important she is, but they've never or not often been able to quite define beyond, you know, her status, why she's important, what about her makes her important. And that's why, you know, every now and then when there's, you know, there there are, are so many different incontinuity versions that are contradictions rather than, you know, with Batman and Superman, every sort of retelling is an enrichment. And with Wonder Woman, every retelling is a muddying, you know, it's mm-hmm. sort of, it's starting again, not getting it. I've actually seen, you know, big name, I, I was offered a run of Wonder Woman with a big name writer attached and because we hadn't worked together before and I didn't know what his take on the character was, I asked for the the brief and the script and it was clear that he not only didn't get her but he didn't like her and I was like, I don't want this to be my opportunity. Mm. Could you Um, name names? (laughs) (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Um, What a big decision. knowing. And what's their address? Well, it it was. It was like, you know, it was right at that point where it was like you know the whole reason for me getting into this industry was to work on Wonder Woman and Dan DiDio very proudly called me to say we'd like to offer you Wonder Woman and I was like yay what no (laughs) and you know I remember sort of saying do you mind if I say no because I don't feel like what I have to bring to the character is what the script is calling for because I think I know her and this writer doesn't like her let alone know her, and is trying to build her from the ground up again. So, no thank you. Um, but then there's been versions like the New 52 version, which I've really enjoyed, but I don't think it's, it's not classic. It's just a really interesting take. Um, she is a hard character to get right because there is so much pressure and so much importance. It's part of the reason why she hasn't had a film or a TV adaptation you know, in 40 years, despite Superman and Batman having constant rotations of them, is because it's, there's too much at stake if they screw it up. Um, And they never quite feel confident that they've got it right because they just know they're going to get bitch slapped every every time they get anything wrong. Mm. And it's going to mean too much. And, uh, you know, it, it... She's a character that's sort of really gone out of fashion. Um, Like five years ago, she felt like an incredibly old-fashioned character. And now she feels incredibly, not just relevant, but the general cultural awareness of her is really strong again. And her importance in culture is strong again. Um, And, you know, a lot of that has come from just sort of fashion coming around, but also... You know, the movie-going audience has now had a good nearly 20 superhero movies in the last 10, 15 years. And, you know, other than Electra and Catwoman, for the love of God, um, <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't actually had one in the, in the actual modern era. So sort of say, you know, from the mid-2000s on, we haven't really had, had one and that we've got one coming and that it is Wonder Woman. I'm thanking God that it's Wonder Woman. I can't believe that Marvel let this get away from them. Um, you know, that, that I think is a massive oversight that they didn't get on that mm. fast enough. Mm. Um, 
you know, it, I, I'm sure when Captain Marvel comes out, it's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm glad that Wonder Woman's coming out first because she should come <laughs> out first. I'm glad that she's only like the, the, the third or fourth of the, you know, modern DC era films. Um, and because I think the audience has been a little overexposed to Superman and Batman, I think the audience is really wanting something fresh and they'll love Wonder Woman. And I have it on very reliable authority that it's great. (laughs) And I think we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, because we're moving into the session with with Paul Dini. Um, If we could all please thank Tom, Nicola, Naya, Hope and Sarah for a great session. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.